to another Chicago Symphony Orchestra virtual pre-concert with your host, Laura Sauer. Dmitry Shostakovich's Opus 110A is actually an arrangement of his eighth string quartet, Opus 110. The Opus 110A was scored for string orchestra by Russian conductor and violist Rudolf Barshai. Shostakovich knew Barshai, and he also transcribed some of Shostakovich's other quartets as well. Shostakovich wrote his eighth string quartet in 1960 in a span of just three days. He shared that it was inspired by the city of Dresden, Germany, which still bore much proof of bombing from World War II, and he dedicated it to the memory of the victims of fascism and war. There was another important dedication, though, one that was not inscribed on the score, but very close to the composer's heart nevertheless. Shostakovich also dedicated this work to himself. He wrote in a letter to a friend, I've been thinking that when I die, it's hardly likely that anybody will ever write a work dedicated to my memory, so I have decided to write one myself. The dedication could be printed on the cover dedicated to the memory of the composer of this quartet. To that same friend, he also wrote, the pseudo-tragic side of this quartet is so powerful. Since coming home, I've tried to play it through twice, but the tears started flowing. Shostakovich quoted several of his other pieces in this quartet. It's as if he was cataloging his own works. He also quoted an anonymous revolutionary song titled Tortured by Harsh Captivity. The string quartet's structure is five movements, all of which are in a minor mode. Three of the five have the tempo of largo, slow and broad. There are no stops in between any of the movements. The main theme is heard at the beginning of the work. It's a four-note spelling of the composer's name, D-S-C-H. This motivic cell permeates the piece and can be heard in every movement. Note names have different spellings between the languages of English and German, and this is how Shostakovich was able to spell his name in the music. In German, the note E-flat is spelled E-S, which sounds like S, and B-natural is H. Most of the time, we see the first few letters of Shostakovich's surname spelled S-H, but in German, this was not the spelling. Shostakovich was in Germany when he wrote this work. The four-note spelling of his name sounds like this. Da, 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 da. He used this signature in other works as well. Here's the beginning of Opus 110A. Listen for Shostakovich's name played many times throughout the various string instruments in an imitative fashion. After Shostakovich introduces his name spelled in the music, we hear a quotation of his first symphony. Don't worry if you don't recognize it. In his quartet, the first symphony phrase is more than twice as slow as in the symphony, and its articulation is also different. Here's that quotation leading right into another spelling of the composer's name.
next, we hear a haunting violin solo. This leads into the other main melody of this movement. Shostakovich's four-note name returns near the end of the first movement, as does the first symphony quotation. The second movement is completely different in mood. Its rhythms are fragmented and violent, and most of the movement is marked to be played fortissimo. The name phrase is everywhere, almost as if Shostakovich is shouting it over and over. Here is the beginning. Listen for the name motif. into the piece's next quotation, Shostakovich's second piano trio. This same phrase from the piano trio is quoted again near the end of the second movement. Overall, there is such a sense of brutal momentum. Shostakovich carries the feel of the second movement into the next by starting with a high-pitched declaration of his name, this time with a trill. This goes right into the main theme, a dark little waltz built on none other than the four-note name motive. Waltz becomes stretched, big and broad, full bowed. Another section goes into duple time and ushers in the march-like principal theme of the first cello concerto, composed the previous year. Here's that theme.
Shostakovich cycles through a return to the dark waltz and its variation, and the quote from the first cello concerto also returns. There isn't much of a sense of completion between some of these movements, which makes the start of the next movement even more impactful. Just like the surprisingly intense beginning to the second movement, the fourth begins with an impactful, biting three-note rhythm as the violin sings a monotone drone. Shostakovich's next quotation then comes in. This time the music is from one of his operas, a second act interlude from Lady Macbeth of Mtsensk. Shostakovich announces the quotation played in a broad unison. drone and three-note rhythm return, followed by Shostakovich's name played in a lower range. This leads right into the only quotation not written by Shostakovich himself, the Russian Revolutionary Song. One more excerpt from Lady Macbeth is heard just moments later. This time, it's from Serioja, My Love, an act for aria, this time played by cello. There are no quotations in the final movement. Rather, Shostakovich returns to themes from the first movement, bringing his eighth quartet back to the start. The final Largo movement begins with his name, played lovingly and reiterated sweetly by cello. Here 
here near the end of this monumental work come Shostakovich's most lush harmonies and the most tender utterances of his name. The final phrases of Shostakovich's opus 110A end with a chord that takes several beats to resolve. The chord does resolve, though. It ends. The piece ends. And as he predicted and perhaps manifested, Shostakovich's eighth string quartet was indeed played at his funeral. On September 6, 1918, Sergei Prokofiev arrived in New York City with the goal of establishing himself as a composer and performer. He had no engagements scheduled at the time, and little went as planned. The New York concert season was delayed due to none other than an epidemic. Sadly, Spanish influenza was only one of the obstacles Prokofiev would encounter. When he arrived in New York, his style of music, which one American publication described as ultra-modern, wasn't as widely accepted as he had hoped it would be. Critics didn't seem to understand his music. Prokofia struggled quite a bit financially and even resorted to altering his musical style to write simpler pieces that he hoped were more approachable and could earn him some money. Eventually, he found himself a manager, who suggested that if he really wished to establish himself, he should appear as a soloist with an orchestra. Playing his own first piano concerto turned out to be just the ticket. Written in 1911 and 12, Prokofiev premiered the first piano concerto in Moscow as soloist, and it was first heard in America in New York. A critic who attended the American premiere wrote, the piano was shrieking, groaning, fighting back, but it was all tremendously exciting because of the verve of the pianist and his extraordinary gift in rhythms. The audience was completely overcome. In 1918, Prokofiev caught the attention of Frederick Stock, who was music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the time. Stock hired Prokofiev to perform, and in his diary, Prokofiev wrote that his booking with the CSO was his first real victory in the States. He would go on to appear with the CSO on five occasions, and his premiere with the CSO ended up garnering him the attention required to launch his career in America. Prokofiev's piano concertos played an important role in the development of his reputation. Until 1941, he himself premiered all his works for piano, including four of the five concertos. Though he later became critical of this piece and shared that it did belie his youth, he also shared that the first piano concerto was his first mature composition, both in conception and realization. It's difficult to play, and it requires large hand leaps on the keyboard. Prokofiev was fond of writing in scalar passages that required the pianist to cross hands quickly. He admitted that, to a certain extent, the orchestra served as glorified accompaniment in this piece. But the funny thing is that sometimes the orchestration really sounds the other way around. I think Prokofiev likely felt this way because at times the soloist isn't carrying the melody, but is still playing quite virtuosically. 
The vivacious main theme of the first movement is heard almost immediately on the piano, and it returns later in the movement and at the end of the concerto as well. The strings and brass echo this catchy theme. Before I play it, consider feedback from one critic who attended the American premiere. The first ascending figure is hardly a theme. This harsh review just goes to show what early 20th century audiences were used to hearing. The solo piano launches forward into a punctuated section, peppered with elaborate scales and large intervallic leaps, and a second galloping theme emerges, echoed by trumpet. The orchestra plays a mournful brass dirge accompanied by violin and trumpet, which ushers in the soloist again. Next comes a section of pianistic fireworks that welcomes back the main theme heard at the beginning, accompanied by sparkling bells. opening movement ends quite differently than it began, quietly, and the score is marked ataka, which signals that the movement should flow directly into the next. The second movement is short and stunning in its contrast with the energy of the first. The first violins introduce the theme.
The piano's entrance is very smoothly integrated with the orchestra, which to me makes it notable. This is executed in two ways. First, the orchestral section preceding the soloist's entrance moves in an ascending pattern, and when the piano enters, it does as well, almost as if the orchestra is kind of passing the baton onto the soloist. Secondly, the piano's entrance is similar enough in tonality to the preceding orchestral section that the two blend together, but there's also a shift. Before the piano enters, the orchestra's chord is comprised of the notes G natural, A natural, and D sharp, and the piano enters a step up on G sharp, A sharp, and E. Things move up one whole step, which creates a bit of distinction between ensemble and piano while keeping them related. Throughout this movement, little ascending scalar figures are heard in several instruments, which serves to unify the soloist and orchestra. In the orchestra's most full-throated section, the main theme returns with greater intensity, and those little ascending scales we heard on the piano return in the flute and clarinet. At the end of the movement, Prokofiev creates a dreamy atmosphere. The piano plays with free rhythm and expression, while the orchestra's accompanying chords are unison in rhythm and much more structured. Depending on how the pianist chooses to play this part, solo and orchestra parts may sound quite disconnected. Though there is no pause between the second and final movement, the second movement sort of fades away, which adds a great moment of new momentum when the solo piano enters. The orchestra's chords are built in a way that doesn't make the key clear, and the piano enters on an offbeat, playing a chromatic scale that doesn't serve to clarify things. Soon, we're off to the races.
again, echoes of the first movement return, that galloping theme heard on piano and trumpet, and Prokofiev uses it as a bass for the soloist's cadenza as well. The cadenza was considered completely eccentric. Here's a taste. Remember that little first movement brass dirge? I won't play it now for the sake of time because I want you to hear the finale of this concerto when the first movement's main melody closes out the work. Back when Prokofiev played his first piano concerto with the CSO in 1918, one of Chicago's publications reviewed it with the headline, Russian Genius Displays Weird Harmonies. <laughs> Best headline ever. By the 1930s and 40s, however, Prokofiev's music had gained popularity in America. It was better understood. Ironically, by then, Prokofiev was living in Stalinist Russia, and after 1938, forbidden to visit the United States. Franz Schubert is perhaps least known for his orchestral writing, but he considered the symphony to be one of the highest forms of musical art. He already was trying to write them at the age of 14. Schubert skirted the line between the classical and romantic periods in art and music, and this can be heard in the evolution of his orchestral works. He took inspiration from 18th century symphonic forms and the symphonies of Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven. Schubert also made the symphonic form his own, too. Musicologists have keenly noted that Schubert's key changes were quite gutsy. With his first few symphonies, Schubert began to depart from symphonic models of the classical period, and his writing became more romantic in scope. He used his gift for writing melodies to his advantage and worked to improve his skills of harmonization. He wrote his third symphony in 1815 at the age of 18 while he was teaching at his father's school. Despite the fact that he had a full-time job and other side gigs, 1815 was an extremely productive year for the young composer. Throughout that year, he wrote more than 150 songs, for example. 150. <laughs> wow. So why isn't Schubert more known for his symphonic works? The answer is threefold. Location, time period, and audience taste. In Vienna, where Schubert lived for most of his life, the symphony was not the most favored musical form during that time. Vienna was a city of lieder lovers, art song admirers. 
the composer built himself a devoted social circle that held gatherings and rehearsals in the schoolhouse where he taught and people's homes. During these gatherings, audiences enjoyed more intimately sized works, such as songs and impromptu piano pieces. These smaller scale works were Schubert's bread and butter and what the public craved. This symphony, along with others, was written for performance by a private orchestra that had grown out of the family's string quartet. Schubert learned to orchestrate by playing in the orchestra. He wrote the majority of the Third Symphony in a span of eight days, and it tips its hat to his first symphony. Both are in the same key and have a similar layout in instrumentation. The symphony opens with a rather ominous chord and timpani roll that is soon cheered up by a little ascending string figure that flirts between major and minor, moment to moment. There is great interplay between solo clarinet and orchestra in this movement, and the clarinet takes its turn playing that introductory ascending melody as well. Though this symphony begins majestically, the clarinet introduces a tempo change and a spirited new section. It brings back the ascending melody from the movement's beginning. took great inspiration from Beethoven's ability to swiftly move between major and minor. And in this movement, these tonal shifts are agile and sometimes quite subtle. You'll hear that sprightly clarinet solo return a few times too, as well as the ascending scalar theme. The next portion is very similar in feel to the rest of the movement due to its swift violin part and clarinet and woodwind textures. The coda, which is a musical section that serves as a sort of extra concluding passage, includes that catchy ascending melody. The second movement has a similar sprightly feel as the preceding movement, but it's more jolly and lightweight. The violin melody is a little bit slower, and the texture is lighter. The timpani takes a break, and there is not much brass presence either. 
This allegretto movement is quite short, serving as a sort of textural palate cleanser before the orchestration thickens up a bit more. We hear the main theme right away. That melody returns, and there are a few wind solos, accompanied by gentle pizzicatos and chuckling strings. As soon as the third movement begins, you can hear that the texture is more robust now, with depth provided by the return of the timpani and brass. The entire orchestra announces the theme at the beginning with plenty of accents placed on the strong beats. This is another movement that displays Schubert's clever shifts between major and minor tonalities. A new section begins, then, and it's a trio. This little interlude features a duo of oboe and bassoon with umcha-cha strings. The opening portion returns to close out this sweet waltz movement. The final movement of Schubert's third symphony is the most enthusiastic, in 6-8 time and marked presto vivace, very lively. One 1950s Schubert biographer called it a madcap affair. Schubert wasn't especially known for rhythmic innovation, but he makes exciting use of it here. The galloping rhythms led by violins are energetic and really drive the symphony to a heroic end. Here's the opening of the final movement. Listen for the subdued little timpani thump at the end of the opening phrase. That always makes me smile. Throughout the orchestra, ascending declarations, reminiscent of laughter and conversation, echo back and forth among various instruments, and they go back to the ascending theme from the symphony's opening. Final ascending declarations, marked to be played fortissimo, bring the symphony to a close, firmly planted where it started, D major.
At the end of the 19th century, Brahms, Wagner, Strauss, and Tchaikovsky's symphonies were simply more popular than Schubert's. But in the next century, Schubert had a particularly powerful champion, Dvorak. When Dvorak was in America, he wrote an article in The Century magazine expressing how much Schubert's early symphonies had been neglected. Schubert may have learned much from Haydn, Beethoven, and Mozart, but his gift for melody was certainly no imitation. This has been another Chicago Symphony Orchestra virtual pre-concert with your host, Laura Sauer.